conversation event with Alice Notley, in conversation with J.L. Williams. Um, just before we get started, can I uh, say some um, traditional things? Please turn your mobile phones off or, or to silence uh, the event, and we'd be very, very grateful um, if you could fill in one of the um, questionnaires um, if you haven't already done so. Again, this is waiting in there. Um, I'm not going to do very much by instructions because we're going to hear uh, much more interesting things from Alice and myself. But Alice um, has produced over 35 uh, books in her writing career, um, including works of autobiography and literary essays, uh, as well as poetry. Her most recent book is Negativity's Kiss, which came out last year with the uh, university presses of Rouen and L'Arve um, in France. Uh, she specialised in recent years in book length, um, epic, um, and, and sometimes narrative autobiographical uh, works, saying in the post place to Negativity's Kiss, my books are the embodiment Tears 
are small drops of jade, red and white jade. His tears have turned to jade. They will be placed in a national museum. There is something in my ear. I pull it out, a white cord, a long silk cord. I pull it out and hear our blood. It hums, a unison one, note loud, a sheet of sound. It hangs there, sad insect noise, insect life, our blood. value is poetry. Listen up, street. What comes from mouth and wrist ill-reputed, reputed, oh, you know, the stupid voice says. It can't replace religion, and it isn't as big as painting, and it doesn't speak to our sacred street like music. And who can read it? It isn't a novel. And what can it say, precious or corny like bad prose, or it's abstract so five guys can gloat? What do you think you've made of it? Of course it doesn't care what you think or how small-minded its own practitioners become. It screams through my mouth in syllables of trespass, assassination, and faithlessness like a diamond can cut you on approach, hates your propositions, fuck you, I'm beautiful and unattainable. Flame keeper, you have a mind like a pandering rat. So if it isn't human worth, what is it? And since you want to define it so you can ply your craft, Broadly, it's anything, anything I say it is. You have no idea, an idea of glass. Poetry, that illegality, fills it with poisons you're afraid of, have never drunk. You've tried to accumulate millionaire memories. I deny memory, you say. I live in the present, special. Fox and Billet do and testaments to precisely you. Didn't even try to make a world of love. I work from the absent district under the black rainbow sign. I spew death words on your classes, academic and social. Fantastic. Uh, as I'm sure you can all feel and see this, I feel like you channel this really amazing energy when you read. Do you enjoy reading it? Oh, I love to read. I mean, uh, I change and I go away to another place and it's hard to come back. I did notice that the two, the, the measure of the first one invaded the second one in the middle, and then I had to, I had to remember what the, the rhythms of this book were like, as, as opposed to the rhythms of that book, and that was, that was strange. Because mm. we were talking yesterday about Alech. Uh, Alech is entirely written um, with these use of these quotation marks every few words that break up each poem into a few little fragments, and it has a very strong rhythmic effect uh, on, on those. Their feet, poem. their poetic feet. Mm, yeah, yeah. And uh, and you, I mean, it, it's something, I was actually reading some essays this morning written about you, but about this idea of always exploring new forms and being open to new forms. And I feel like in your career over time, you've, it doesn't feel like you've felt uh, tied to anyone. You've, you've found the form that suits each, each book. Well, it feels as if I have to invent a new form for each book, mm -hmm. and um, that's, that's part of the process. And I occasionally do use old forms, uh, but I do it secretly, and I, I, I tend not to tell people what I'm doing or where it comes from or how I did it. Um, for example, recently I've been using um, uh, Horace's, Horace's meters, but uh, I, I did it in a way I mean, you, you obviously can't do that in English, and there's been a discussion of how you can't do that in English for several hundred years. So I, I don't want to be part of that discussion because I know I can't do that. I know I can't, I can't, uh, I can't do a meter where a vowel is emphasized in a certain way because you can't do that in English. But, but what I can do is stare at the meters at the back of the low classics and somehow impress them into my mind and make something which retroactively was was uh, was predicted by by these. These are like Latin meters, actually. But I got it from William Carlos Williams a bit in his variable foot. Mm -hmm. It's the sense that uh, a line is divided into these feet, but they're not uh, they're not two necessarily two three syllable feet. They're these long feet, 
and they're, they're different from each other and you never quite know what's going to come up and it makes for a very long line as long as 16 syllables and this is probably too technical. Oh, no. <laughs> that's interesting. This is what I, this is the kind of thought process I have. And it's not necessarily lucid. And, and then somehow it turns into these lines. Mm -hmm. it, it turns into a sound and it turns into a, 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 live, a live thing. Mm -hmm. all, all alive. And uh, you're very interested in telling stories, aren't you? Or it well, feels yes. like they're... I started out as a story writer. I, I went to... Uh, I went to Iowa as a story writer. I'm from this very small town in the Mojave Desert, and I, I only knew that there were novelists and story writers, but there were fiction writers, and I knew there were poets, but they were all dead. And <laughs> I, went, I went to the university, I went to the University of New York City, I went to Barnard College, uh, which is a very sophisticated college, and I, I sort of found that there were live poets, but, um, Nonetheless, as a writer, I was writing stories. And it didn't occur to me that I was writing them the way poets write poems, because I didn't know how poets write poems, but I was writing the stories word by word. And it was adding and getting, getting each word out. And I, I, I wrote some pretty good stories, but not very many. And I was accepted uh, at the University of Iowa in the, the, the fiction workshop, and I went there as a fiction writer, and then I, I met poets, and I turned into a poet, and I did my degree in fiction and poetry. Mm. I don't know if anyone else did that, mm. but that's what happened. Mm. And then I thought I probably couldn't tell stories, that I wasn't a very good storyteller. I knew I couldn't tell jokes, but I, I, was, I could only remember the punchline. But they are full of funny <laughs> bits. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, there, there's a difference between jokes and wit, no one had explained that to me. <laughs> but what happened was like the story gradually came back into the poems. Mm -hmm. And I more and more I was telling stories as I was writing poems. And so it really did make sense that I started out as a fiction writer. And my, my poems became more and more fictional. And I realized that the kind of poetry I liked was the long narrative poem. I liked Chaucer. I liked Shakespeare a lot, and you know, story, people talking, um, all of that, and plus the meter. Yes, <laughs> but where is it exactly? You know, mm. it's hidden. It's but supposed to be. Mm. But also, I think, you know, it's part of what's so exciting for me. I think when when you're doing it, is that <coughs> you're uh, getting those stories, but. Uh, in what feels like a much more direct and linguistically interesting way than you might get them in a novel. <laughs> well, the crap is well, pulled out. Novels are very flat. Yeah. I wouldn't want to write one myself. No, and I think that's interesting is this sense of your work being multidimensional and polyphonic and having, uh, I was reading that you'd spoken about this idea of, in one piece that you're working on, of um, your head as a kind of Byzantine <laughs> church uh, and all the icons and murals in there being able to conjure the crystalline city which <laughs> sits over the real city. But these lenses, I think, are something so interesting in your work, the difference between the real world and how we perceive the world. Okay, that was, I was writing that, that book, which, was, which is called Reason and Other Women in the, in the 90s. And I, it was the only time where I, I, when I ever applied for a Guggenheim, and I kept trying to explain, you're supposed to talk about what your project is, and I kept trying to explain to them that I was working on this project that involved my head being a Byzantine church, and <laughs> I knew that I wasn't, I was never going to get the Guggenheim, <laughs> and I would just do it, I did it every year for about three years, and then I gave up, and I haven't, I've never applied since then. I, I can't explain what I'm doing, and I don't think I should have to. Awesome. Yeah, I should have given you the good <laughs> <laughs> That was a great explanation. But the idea was that my head was... I, I fell in love with Byzantine art at the same time as I wanted to write very fast on the typewriter 
and try to figure out how mine works. And I wanted to, you know, none of this project fit together. I mean, none of my projects ever do fit together. They're, they're always made of, uh, they're always three or four different directions that don't quite mesh. Because I was also reading Christine de Pizan and being very affected by the, the, the La Cité des Dames, and that as a, a as a different historical period from or the Byzantine period. I was looking at these pictures and books of Byzantine icons and, and writing as fast as I can, could, and all the words all turned into dots of a mosaic. And it was like those mosaics I, I was looking at in the books became the words I was writing down. And all, all, all of this was, was very complex and the, the, nobody really likes to read trying to get it published, and none of my publishers would publish it, and I finally found a guy, uh, Charles Alexander Chats, and he, uh, Chats Press, and he published it. I, it was turned down by seven publishers, and I was already fairly well known, and it would just get turned down and turned down and turned down. I was wondering about that you, I, I imagine this, um, we were talking about at the beginning, if we had Alice's complete poems, this book would take up a sort of Borgesian wall. You know, it would be an enormous book, and you've been so productive, and you write, sounds like you write most days, you read every day. Um, to produce that much work, uh, do, you, do you find it comes quite naturally out of you? And, and then, well, it sounds like it's not always easy to get it published as well. Has publishing been a struggle? Or? Um, I suppose everything's a struggle and nothing is at the same time. You know, it's what you do. Mostly I write. I write every day, except when I'm traveling. I write in the morning, same time of day, every day, I'm in the same chair. I'm, I'm always writing something different, but, but I keep the routine uh, consistent, and then I amass these piles of manuscripts, and then I have to try to figure out how to get them published, because they're at a certain point, I look and there are too many of them and I've got to get rid of some of them. And, um, but I try to see what to do. And one of my publishers is Penguin USA. They're probably my best publisher, but they only publish a book every four years or so. So they, they don't take care of me. And I have discussions with them about whether or not it's okay to go to these other people. And my editor actually tries to think of other publishers for me. <laughs> and he's, he's very good in this way. Wesleyan, and I maintain a relationship with uh, the small press world, and I, I publish books for small presses. I publish with whoever will have me, basically. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, and do you feel, when you send the work out into the world in that way, does that, uh, uh, does that feel like a loss? Or does that feel like no. the poems are free no. now? They're no. <laughs> living their lives? Um, no, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like anything. <laughs> it's not. It's not the important part. Mm, yeah. I mean, it is important, you know. But you have to. You have to make it be concrete. But um, I don't know. I some, sometimes I just don't care if the work gets published, and sometimes it seems desperately important because I have so much to tell people. It feels like. But does one? I don't know. There was a line in one of the poems you read the other night. It, uh, I am your mouth, uh, which I thought was fabulous, and it was making me think about that sense of that may have been a character speaking rather than you, but no, that's me. Uh, I mean, it was a character, but that's mm, me. Mm, that's me. And that. Oh no, that's Sydney. That's at the beginning of I went down there. Mm. I I had been to visit my mother, and she was she had broken her hip. She was 88 or 89 at the time, and then she just got back up, you know, and she got her hip fixed, and she lived for another four or five years, and uh, she had this immense energy to live. I felt very inspired by her, and I came back to my house, and there's no connection here, because there never is, but I, I, it felt to me that there were all these spirits under the bed that wanted me to speak to them. And something about, something about the way she had been gave me the courage.
courage to write this kind of poetry. And so I, I just, I felt this, all, all of these people did want me to talk to them. And I, I have felt this for uh, some years now, and, and I became their mouth. And, and I, I'm the mouth of others. I have nothing to say personally. consider sleeping to be part of my work time. <laughs> but from the time I was a little girl, it, it, um, I, I've, all, I've always woken up three or four times a night, and I wake up and think about what's going on while I'm asleep, and then I go back to sleep, and I think about my dreams, and, and kind of process them, and go back to sleep, and it's as if I'm in a state of communication with um, the world as, as, as dreamers, but uh, a lot of the world isn't dreaming at the same time as I'm dreaming, but it's like I'm getting information, and uh, I watch it in my sleep, mm -hmm. work on it. I've just started keeping a, a sort of dream, you know, writing down my dreams in the morning, and I, I didn't think I was someone who remembered my dreams, um, and then the minute I started writing it down, now every night I remember my dreams. It's like I've woken up to them. It's quite an exciting feeling to find all this other There's stuff a lot of happening. material there. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, dreams, uh, dreams are like important experiences that you have. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they can be, and they can be. A dream can be just as important as an experience as something that happens to you in your life, in your living life, your awake life. someone has said you're uh, a great writer, then whatever you do is considered to be art. That was the interpretation of the dream. And it goes into the museum. The museum belongs to the elite people. And the, the, you know, the judgment of who gets to be in the museum is, is, is an elite judgment. And it was about, I think it was about the tears of, Wash of Eisenhower. <laughs> it was the tears of Eisenhower. They had turned to jade. He was a great general, so mm -hmm. his tears were very important. They were, they were artifacts. Yeah. Whereas we, the people in the subway, who are simply riding the subway, don't get to have our, our tears uh, placed in the museum. There, there was another line from one of your poems the other night. There was some dream to the effect of why do we dream to remember to remember we both exist outside of space and time. We we exist outside of space and time. I thought that was just so. There's no funny. explanation for dreams. There's no no one has <coughs> explanation, and uh, scientific explanations are just pathetic. Nobody just <laughs> nobody knows how to talk about it or what it is or where it happens. You know, or, or why why. Uh, why you could dream about someone you've never met, and they could be a, a full-fledged uh, person with, with uh, very clear-cut features and clothes and that sort of thing. Um, and there's another line I love from the Hanuli, the Hanuli poem. What is that one called? It's called Victorious. Victorious. It's a spectacular poem. It's a Victorian that title. Victorious. The language is finding its nearly unfashioned form, which I thought was a kind of 
wonderful way actually of thinking about your life. I think that's quite common. Or is it wrong? <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what it is. Is it psychic? Mm. Oh, oh, well, maybe I'm quite wrong. It's, it's almost right. It might be wrong. <laughs> but, but something about that idea again of, of the, the poem sort of coming into being uh, in response to these the material or the, these voices that one's trying to convey. Yeah. Well, it writes itself, but it wouldn't write yourself, write itself if you hadn't put a tremendous amount of work previously into learning how to be the person who can write the poem that writes itself. So, I mean, it takes 20 or 30 years to be in that position. Mm. Um, you have to keep uh, keep reminding, your, you know, you have to know that Eventually, this will happen to you. Uh, it requires a great deal of faith. We talked a little bit yesterday about the changing, having to change at certain times because of things that had happened in your life that uh, maybe the, the form you were writing in that a certain grief or loss or thing had happened and then you had to find a new way of writing. The first time it happened was when I had babies. Mm -hmm. I had to I had to invent forms. I had to invent forms that would enable me to write with small children around me. I had to uh, invent forms to be able to discuss pregnancy. But then I had an enormous postpartum depression, and somehow I had to, had to incorporate that into my writing. And so I was in a state of formal invention all the time because because of these things happening to me, and I learned forms where I would uh, write bit by bit every day and I wrote down what my, my children said and did and what my husband said and did and the, our house was always full of people and I just started incorporating everything they said into what I wrote and um, because I had no time to myself so I wrote while people were there. I learned how to memorize uh, conversations between people All of these things, and I had no um, no one who had come before me had had written about having small children. It was it was quite um, it was quite daunting, but it was really interesting to be in this this position where I it felt as if I was doing the first writing like this. <laughs> it was scary, but it was also really really fantastic, and um, it it kind of balanced the fact that I felt so desperate. Because I was so depressed, <laughs> mm -hmm. it was a very it was a very complicated uh, situation. And then there was a then I was a member, supposedly of the second generation of New York School, uh, which of the, and the New York School is a, is a very brilliant uh, school of, of poetry, and probably the best poetry athletes in the United States were in that first generation of the New York School. I mean, just fabulous writing. None better than that done by people like Frank O'Hara and John Ashbery. And then we were the, and Kenneth Koch and Jimmy Schuyler, and we were the second generation. And we were kind of more working class, and some of us were women, and uh, we were, it was a different kind of generation, but the values were wit, um, wordplay, uh, brilliant, a brilliant surface of language, things like that. Usually keeping it rather light, and then at a certain point, everyone in my life started to die. My husband died, my stepdaughter died, my brother died, and my best friend died, and the the style just didn't serve me anymore. I couldn't do the style, uh, and and uh, my the self I was at that point couldn't do it, and so I changed styles and I started writing. I started writing the work that led to this book, and I, I wrote this book, and um, my friends disapproved. I had to go against my friendships at that point. Nobody, nobody liked The Descent of Alec. Actually, a couple people did, but people, people that weren't in my school were the ones who liked it, and uh, people would come up to me and tell me not to do this. And Joe Brainerd didn't like it. <laughs> he really didn't like the quotation marks, and Eileen Miles didn't like the quotation marks, and, and 
everybody talked about everybody talked to each other in a certain way and if you didn't approve of what someone was doing you told them it, it, it was all very existential and very important and um, you know you had to tell each other things and so people were always telling me what they didn't like that I was doing <laughs> and how did you find the strength to continue doing what you believed in well I, I just knew that I was right I've always known I was right. <laughs> I love. I thought they were fools. <laughs> Good thing to remember about your critics. Uh, I love at this point. If if we've already got on time for too many, but if we just have a couple. Oh God, I forgot there was a time limit. Well, you know, we can be a little flexible about that. A couple of excellent questions from the audience. We'd be happy to take them. Does anyone have any burning questions? Ian. There was something you said earlier that really struck me, where you were talking about um, you learned to write in different styles so that you could speak for different people. Yes. Um, and I wondered because it sounds like some of the way that you think is tied into the sort of the, the sort of Jungian subconscious and dream and connectedness of people. So, do you feel there's some sort of healing process that you're facilitating by being able to voice things, even if people aren't having? Yes, never know that you're doing. I do. Yeah, I, I, I do, but yeah. it sounds corny if you say it. And it, if you say Jungian, you feel terrible. No, no, I don't think about Jung or anything. Yeah. No, I do. I do think that that's happening, and that it's what I'm doing, and that um, and that there are voices that come from other places besides this tiny local planet, and you know, I, we're all making the universe together. school and they would know it and they would 
like manifestos and stuff. And Bernadette Mann and I didn't know it. Ted used to tell us we were a school. Um, he, um, and after, after a while, I figured out we were a school. But as I'd said somewhere, it felt like we were inventing a voice for, for, a, for a woman poet altogether. And we would pass it around from each other from one of us to the next one to the next one, and then it would come back around again. And uh, we worked something out by, by being friends. So I, I feel close to their work, although I haven't been friends with Bernadette for 30 years, but I still feel really close to her work. She's a very good poet. I'm curious about um, your experience as a woman writing poetry, and I know we talked about when even this idea of writing about birth and, and motherhood and that being very groundbreaking, and also that there weren't many women poets writing when you started writing in yes. that sense. Um, but that, and, and if there's a feeling, has that, and, and this development of a woman's voice or a way that women can write in, in poetry, and, and is there a way that that has changed over the years, and how do you feel about that now? There are a lot of women writing. There are a lot of women publishing. There's, but there's a ghetto effect um, where women write and publish together. And I think men like that because they, they can still hold on to all the power. <laughs> and, but women don't seem to notice that this is happening. And they, they aren't making power for themselves by, by being by being a part as a group. And I, I think uh, men and women should be mixing more. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't like to just agree with women. I don't like to just be. I really like men. <laughs> <laughs> it, it came up in the, the breakfast talk yesterday, this idea that um, about gatekeepers and quotas and whether we need all those sort of things and Director de Rotterdam has to say, we don't need that. Everyone, everything's balanced. We know oh, women yes, are great. So that's balanced. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the case here yet. There are very many women poets at the moment, but as the as the Via people in the United States keep proving, they're not getting enough news and they're not all getting published. Um, it's just that they're there. They're, you know, they're there, and it, um, they keep being like series for women and a group, groups for women. And, I keep reading with women, and uh, it, 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 it's like it's, it's like it's gone backwards in a way. Even though, even though there are, there are more people involved, more women involved. On a slightly different note, but maybe about this idea of being alone. Um, we were talking about the fact that you moved to Paris first with your husband, but then. When he passed away, you stayed in Paris, and there's maybe a sense of you having found that useful for writing, but that it might be a little bit lonely. <laughs> it's a bit different than the life you're living in New York, where you had this, all those people in your house and this community around you all the time. Well, that's true. <laughs> I don't quite know what to say about it. It feels right to me that I should be alone, that I should not be part of a group, and that I should be writing exactly the way that I am, but it is tremendously lonely. And I don't have anything else to say about that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be in a couple, as they say in France. Mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I, I don't want to have to, um, there's, a, there's a thing you do when you live somewhere else where you compromise your opinions all the time in order, in order to be together. You're, you're always compromising, and both of you do this. And I don't want to do it anymore. Want to have my own thoughts and have them be my own and, and be as I please and think. Particularly, I want to think as I please and write whatever I want. I don't want any criticism or feedback. <laughs> I just I don't have to have it anymore. I I think that something I I think I don't mean to be giving you feedback, but it's something <laughs> I admire in you so much. And Sometimes one can feel so um, 
pressure to try to write things that people will be able to make sense of or will think is great. And, and yeah, I feel strongly that that's not a good way to write, that one has to write what's coming from deep inside. It feels like too Jurymanage to do that. It's really exciting. Well, I, I write from what comes from outside. Outside, <laughs> yeah. I, I learned how to do that from writing in an apartment full of voices. Mm -hmm. so it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. But I've always I've always listened to voices and uh, thought about uh, you know thought about ways to organize them. And I, I'm quite interested in uh, drama and theater. I've been going to the Comédie Française in Paris now. I've been totally turned on by. Racine and Molière, and I, I discovered a new great literature I didn't know anything about, and I'm old now, and I didn't know, you know, I didn't know how great it was. I didn't know how great Racine was. He is so great, and I'm so enthusiastic about his poetry, which also resembles something that I've been trying to do forever. So everything, everything is always the same thing, but, uh, but read Racine. <laughs> Orange flesh. It eats you because you think that you're people. 
I have a necklace of bloody teeth for this cure, teeth of many martyrs, the stars above the barren town. Move in waves, crickets sing too, see the empty haunt here, it eats you. But how many of death's teeth have I stolen? It doesn't have any left. Pass through the image of death. He's taken your name, I had no name. Do not remember me, unreal Lord. You are wrong about everything. There's a cure in each instant. If you can keep it from ending. Don't think what the songs think now. I hear her hypnotic voice, the blood on my hair. Soon be over. Sorrow will have an end. No, don't think what the songs think. Just think how they sound. Don't answer if you can. And he walks with me and he talks with me where the sister dwelled of the flame jaguar. Is this the debt to beauty? The whole conception was bloody. Heap of silver and turquoise, my magic. If you change, you show it indifferently. Crickets don't change the federales' ways. Crickets don't even know the federales. Cross the silver mesh path there, turn off the law. I'm not part of your growth chart saying this life is compelled. I have the unconditioned in a heap in my pocket, she says in her bloody monotone. Where is the change? It's in you. It's my magic, no one's. I'm waiting in shallow water, waiting in the water. Lift your skirt. I've done this so many times. How did you learn it? It's in my genes. It's in my global genes. There were once jaguars everywhere around here. There will be animals in your guests, won't there? I'm talking directly to you. I'll greet my defect, my soul, with this animal part of the folk. If I find your soul, do you want it? I see it everywhere, past the death visage. If I find your soul, do you want it? Do you even know? Do you even know what part of you you are? Big medallion, the gold you invested, a precision of sorrow cut out to be a face you'll almost remember. It floats within, on the road of the souls, the jaguar and I. Through the deserts of dying words and spirits, thick as bats, blow, plow on through Corolla Pass to meet my love. See the souls around me everywhere. One of them is you. I know who I was, says the soul. I don't try to remember it. It's the promised line, not the promised land. What you recall, that's all. He has a big face. His eyes are closed. I wouldn't want to go back, he says. I don't blame you. What will you return with, then? A fair deal, I say. When I died, he says, everything was unresolved. That's always the case with deaths. There is no official cause of death, is there? Yes, there is, but it is incorrect. I had what you have now, he says. That's not why I came, or is it part? I should bring back a soul. It's my work, after all. Shades crowding round the bloody jaguar. Shades crowding round my blood-red hair. Then I see her, young, eyes closed. I see my own soul. How do you know? It stands between the king and queen of swords. There are no rooms here, there are no beds. Where is there rest, I ask. That's not the right language, he says. There's plenty of rest here, as I once told you there'd be. She's resting, you know. She needed some peace, he says. I see my own soul there, heavily guarded by others, as always. This is an ancient procedure. I know, I know that she doesn't want to die though her land is condemned. My own soul doesn't want to die. The hoodal sings, the jaguar grins. I'm taking her back, I say, and I reach for her hand and lead her from between the king and queen. Then I face my old love, no one. I gave you the illness, he says. It doesn't matter, love.
just remind everyone that there is now the archipelago event in the Bar Courtyard, where if you bring along the name of an island on a piece of paper and hold it up, and I've got a few spare bits of paper, we'll all make an archipelago thinking about the islands that are threatened by climate change. It's because there's a big march in London today. So it's at 12.40 in the Bar Garden. Thank you for being so generous to read some things that we're doing as well. It's, it's really wonderful. <coughs> we, we, were, we were in touch, I think, because I was trying to persuade you to come over when we had the Louise Bourgeois exhibition on Jennifer oh, right. Red. Um, that was you. Yeah, it was me. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun to put faces to would I be able to ask you to sign my copy of the to send for that? It seems to be like a, 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 a meme. Yeah. Like a oh, I'm so sorry. I don't have my copy here. My copy's in America. That would be beautiful. Thank you. I have to remake one I got this when you were, you were reading Arnold and Bristol. I so love the sense of that. Such a wonderful book, isn't it? Yeah. It's just been a really um, pleasure to have Yeah, me, me too. And I haven't had known it as long as you have. But, um, yeah, it was one of the most important books I've read, I think. Yeah. That's really kind. Thank you. See if travels back. So I just want to say a very quick thank you so much for this and for your reading the other night. And, you know, I'm like Jennifer, the descent for that, I think, really changed me as a person and as a poet. And as a woman poet, it was an incredibly important book. So thank you. Mm. And thank you for uh, also <laughs> for reading <laughs> such, a, such a rich music. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it helped us to be less scared. <laughs> and I think that's the challenge. I'd organised my whole trip around being here for Thursday night and then something went wrong, so I'm just really happy that I made it for today. Yeah. That was really wonderful, thank you. I did the same, I didn't bring gravy.